one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name is Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Dominic Fifield of The Guardian and Seb Stafford-Bloor, editor of TIFO Football. You don't have to buy into the corporate mumbo-jumbo to admire Manchester City. As a thrilling football team, they've got few equals, and this is the week they've been waiting for. By next Tuesday night, they could be Premier League champions and in the semi-finals of the Champions League. Destiny, all of that. Now, can United and Liverpool stop them? What do you think, Dom? Um, well, they're difficult games. Um, there's a lot of emotion um, at both those fixtures, really. Um, United will be desperate not to see City crowned at, at Old Trafford. Um, the, I, I guess the Liverpool games are slightly different. Liverpool and, and, and Europe and the sort of romance that that, that conjures um, will make those two occasions electric. Um, and Liverpool, as one of the teams that has beaten Manchester City this season, um, will take some confidence going into that fixture. They'll also, weirdly, I think they'll take quite a lot from the first 20 minutes of the, the game at the Etihad earlier the season before before Mane was sent off. They're actually playing pretty well. Mm. So they're, they're awkward fixtures, but... The momentum, the belief, the conviction, the style, the panache, it's all with Manchester City and they will go into them not fearing anybody. Mm. The thing about cliches, Seb, is that they're, they're little capsules of truth sometimes. And when we talk about you know the great Anfield nights, the Anfield aura, there is something to that. Will it play any part on Wednesday night? I think it will, Mike, but I, I think it will for, well, depending on how the first 15, 20 minutes goes. Because we know what Anfield will be like in those sort of, in the, you know, before kickoff, we've we've been. They'll there. be wired, won't they? Absolutely, and and Liverpool's history there on European nights is good enough to suggest that that does have an impact. However, if City within 10, 15 minutes get an opening goal an away goal as well, then kind of the sort of the recency bias of of what City are and have been throughout the Premier League season is is going to dampen the atmosphere. So you just um, yeah, if 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 Liverpool can translate that into something tangible. And maybe get an early goal, then then it comes in play definitely. Mm. There has been a lot of talk about whether this team is the best in the Premier League era. I would say probably they've got to go and win the Champions League to actually prove that. But irrespective of that, can this team get better? And if so, how? Oh, I think I think the way that Guardiola approaches matches. I mean, I don't know how much of it's for show of late, but he's almost talking about the result not being the be all and end all. It's actually the performance. 
And I, I think that demands that, that level of perfection that he's, he's out means that there will be improvement. There has to be improvement. They have to keep evolving. Um, I think you'll see um, another few younger players coming into the into the side in the summer. The, the people they're sort of being linked with, they're all in that sort of 22, 23. Like Vagel and people like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, Vagel's 22, isn't he? And, he? and he would fit into the system. I mean, they'll have they'll have a regular left back or left wing back playing for them next season. Um, they've sort of been filling that role um, through the through the injury um, up to Mondi this, this year. Um, I, I just... I mean, I think that's the most worrying thing for the chasing pack in the Premier League because we, we talk about how the Premier League is wonderfully competitive in the top. There are six clubs that, that at the beginning of the season will target winning the title. But if City continue to evolve at this rate and they, un, under Guardiola with a plan, I, I just don't see anyone catching them. Um, and and that, that is dispiriting considering the progress that, that teams like, like Liverpool and Tottenham have been making almost on the quiet. They've just been completely overtaken by Guardiola's City in, in, in the blink of an eye, really. Mm. And it's not just money, although they've got stacks of the stuff. If you look at Raheem Sterling, now obviously there's going to be a lot of attention on him going back to Liverpool. Yeah. 21 goals, you know, he asked us to feel the love. We've got to really, haven't we? Absolutely. I think the way I look at Sterling's season this year is, is kind of seen his capacity for development and that's cerebral as, as well as physical and technical because I think a lot of, I mean, Raheem Sterling has had a great goal scoring season in one sense, but also his, his movement around the box, a lot of his goals have come from him being in the right position at the right time. He scored inside the six yard box. He's, you know, he's, he's, he's scored a few scruffy ones in injury time. I remember the one at Bournemouth really early on in the season. Missed, missed a couple of ones as he's, well. He it? has missed a couple of ones. But it, I, I think what that, that, that's kind of a symptom of his understanding of what Guardiola is trying to do because a player doesn't get into that position if he doesn't know what's supposed to be going on around him. And I think, you know, we, when, when Sterling played under Brendan Rodgers in that fantastic Liverpool team, you saw all his technical attributes, his acceleration, you know, his long-range shooting and, and, and his goal scoring, but now you see his sort of tactical awareness. And I think that's kind of, you know, you, you have to recognise that he's sort of, he's, he's been elevated to a slightly different level of the game, no longer just a physical and technical specimen, but, you know, a truly elite player. Maybe not quite world-class yet, but certainly, you know, on the way to being so. Mm. The weird thing about Sterling's development, we spoke to him um, ahead of the England Games, um, I think it was ahead of Italy. He came across as a much more confident oh, figure. Oh, my word. I mean, in terms of how eloquent he was and how he was even cracking jokes. I mean, you'd never, Raheem Sterling wouldn't have done that two years ago, probably wouldn't have done it a year ago. Um, and in that environment as well, where he's being criticised heavily with England, um, to, to do it in that environment was, was actually quite striking. But the stuff that he was talking about, Guardiola bringing out of him, was, was basic stuff. I mean, he was sort of saying, he was, he was almost treating with incredulity what, when we were sort of asking him, well, what are you doing differently? And he said, well, Guardiola is just getting us doing what we did when we were under eight. And we did it instinctively back then. It's sort of been drummed out of us in the period since. Mm. He, he gave that example of um, the ball coming, him out on, coming out to him on the wing and him controlling it with the outside of his boot, which looks lovely and looks brilliant. Um, but he said, Guardiola said, no, 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 just open your body up and keep the ball moving. The ball will move quicker. The defender will find it harder to, to track you and, and to control you. And he's just taken that on board. And he said he was, you know, when he was a kid, when he was a seven or eight-year-old kid, he'd do that. That's what he would do. Mm. And now he's doing that again um, because his manager is drumming it into him on the training field. Yeah, we're going to talk about coaching in greater depth a bit later. I thought it was interesting that he came across well in an England environment 
Do we have to praise Gareth Southgate for that as well? I think so. I think, um, I mean, it, it's going to be praise, which is given short shrift should, you know, should, uh, should disappointment come in the summer, of course. Uh, but I, I look at this England team and I think the one thing that I see is probably uh, less inhibition than there was maybe six months ago, a year ago. And you have to praise the manager because I think some of the negative things that we've we've read and we've heard said by some of the players uh, in the past have related to the way that the England camps are organised and structured. And yeah, it's, uh, clearly, um, Southgate has an advantage in the sense that he knows he's known a lot of these players for quite a long time because of his involvement with the under-21s and the structure as a whole. Um, but you, if, you, if you create the conditions for players to feel comfortable, you have a far greater chance of, of replicating what they do well with their clubs. Um, and sort of lessening the natural pressure which comes from playing with England and the, the sort of, uh, I, I don't even know how to define it anymore, that, that sort of that uh, ethereal uh, whatever, that yeah. we, however we want to term it. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so absolutely he does. Um, yeah, for sure, Mike. But, but the big test of that is how they deal with, with even being in the training camp in sleepy Rapino sure. outside <laughs> of the, like, the drizzle of the Baltic. So. Talking of criticism, John Stones is a high-risk player a lot of confidence, but with that comes mistakes and then the criticism comes. Where do you think he is in his development? Um, well, we asked him that after the Holland game, the Netherlands match, and he, he, uh, he gave the impression that, that he is gaining lots from Guardiola again. Um, his confidence levels are high. He was talking about how, you know, we haven't been making mistakes in possession uh, I haven't been making mistakes in possession with England. I hadn't in that game just now against the Dutch. Um, but if they do come, they'll stick with us. The crowd have got to believe in what we're doing as well. That inevitably, they will be at some stage. Uh, the old error. And then in the first <laughs> 10 minutes against against Italy, there were three errors, weren't there? Yeah. I mean, he, was, yeah. he, was, he looked half asleep. Um, but I, I, I go with... I'll go, I'll go back to what he said. I think we do have to be patient. Um, he hasn't been playing a lot of club football of late. Um, he is going to be Southgate's first choice centre at half, so let's just live with that. that will will he be happen. Pep's first choice? Uh, maybe in years to come, but I mean, Otamendi's been so good, and, you, and at the moment you can't drop company, and Laporte's done a decent enough job, yeah. so there, there's more competition at City than there is at England level. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think he's the natural fit for the centre of those. Centers. I'd rather have John Stones in the middle of the back three, England's back three, than Eric Dyer. Um, I think Dyer is. I think Dyer will offer a, a level of security in midfield, um, or even as on one of the sides of the centre halves, actually, um, which would benefit Stones with England. Mm. How do you expect Guardiola to approach Wednesday night, Seb? You know, I saw uh, Liverpool on Saturday, and Wilfred Sahar got inside yeah. uh, Trent Arnold. Um, on several occasions, especially during the first half, would Pep have looked at that and thought, well, Asane, Sterling would probably be on the other side against Robertson? I think so. I mean, I, I, think, um, I think, you know, in fairness to Trent Alexander-Arnold, there, there aren't many fullbacks that Wilfred Zaha doesn't go past. I mean, he's, I mean, as a sort of a one-on-one -on -one threat, he goes past. He's getting inside him. He, he does a lot. And I, I think that's a little bit to do with Matip as well. Mike, I think that... Um, I don't think Matip has a, a long-term future at Anfield necessarily. I think they'll, um, they'll try to improve that area. I think Guardiola's focus will be on trying to cut through Liverpool's midfield. The one thing he's always hated as a coach is 
those possession phases which start at centre back and sort of shimmy around the side of the pitch to full backs and you know don't really penetrate at all. So I think you'll see a lot of sort of uh, uh, temperament changes uh, when City have possession. I think they'll try and penetrate that area in front of Liverpool's uh, defence. I think the obvious point to make is that Liverpool defensively all over, you know, that entire unit is not that stable. But I think um, if City can control the ball, I think mistakes will, will appear on, you know, in, in every area of the pitch. I think Robertson's been excellent going forward. I think what he's brought is a sort of a, a natural left-sided balance, which, uh, with due respect to Alberto Moreno, he didn't bring. Um, but I think, yeah, I, I think that's the midfield. I think, I, think City, I think Liverpool's job is to try and remain compact in front of the defence. And if City can disrupt that, if City can uh, control the ball, then, um, yeah, problems all over the pitch, I'd have thought. We've looked at their weaknesses. What would you say the strengths of Liverpool are? Front, front three, um, that's frightening. I think in, in that scenario, it says it's painted, it, it'll, Liverpool will be playing on the break, effectively. Um, Which would suit them. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And that, that, that is, if you, get, if you get Salah, Mane and Firmino, well, Firmino dropping, maybe the other two running at, at City's back line, then they will have some joy. And, and Oxlade-Chamberlain was outstanding in that 4-3. Um, because he he can offer a bit of forward propulsion through the middle as well if required. Um, it's 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 potentially going to be it could be a fantastic fantastic tie. You wonder. I think actually, I don't think it will be cagey. I don't think these teams are almost capable of doing cagey. Well, I, Dom, I don't I don't think Liverpool can afford to be cagey at no. Anfield. I think they have to take a, you know a one two goal advantage yeah. to yeah. get ahead. Yeah. So I think they, I think Klopp will know that. Mm-hmm. With Klopp, he's done his hundred. Premier League games now. When I see him speak, and he, he spoke a lot in, in the International Week, didn't he? he? did a lot of one-on-one interviews where he was sort of talking everything from, you know, laughter to Brexit and, you know, the whole nine yards of, of you know, his life. Um, where is he? Is he actually sort of um, almost by some form of osmosis sucking up that whole Liverpool legend, tradition, spirit, is he a modern Shankly? Well, I, I, I'd be very wary of, of drawing that parallel to Tyler. I, I think, um, I think in a way, I mean, I, I'm not old enough to to have any first-hand knowledge of Shankly. Everything I know is from what I've read and and, and watched. I think, um, I think what Shankly represented in terms of kind of the socialist beliefs and, and the kind of the the care for the community and the actual genuine hardened affection for Liverpool. I think. And this is not aimed at Jurgen Klopp. I, I think that's a very easy thing to mimic. I mean, I, I certainly Brennan Rogers uh, went a little bit down that line. Yeah, we are about the sort of, stuff. Yeah. yeah, running running through the streets and smelling the mints and that kind of stuff. And and that may very well be sincere. What I mean is that there's a template that exists. It's a very quick way to to garner affection. I'm not saying that's what Klopp's doing, but it, it just it makes me slightly reticent when I hear that kind of stuff. It's a it's almost a um, yeah, it's 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 a way of, of of garnering support from from the fan base. I think, um, you know, in, in fairness, Klopp is a, a very likable character. He's a very open, emotive person. Um, I I don't know. I mean, I, I just I, I there's there's something inside me. I, I just I, I can't I can't put him there yet. It's just it feels premature. And also, you know, from a legacy standpoint, um, it would be ludicrous. I mean, Shankly is Shankly, and, and has the you know the tangible um, rewards to. Uh, you know, to make his case, but I, I, Klopp needs to actually achieve something. It's not a he occupies a place within people's affection. He doesn't actually, as yet, occupy a place within Liverpool's history. I think mm. that's the distinction I draw. Mm. But as a coach, 
he's ideally suited to this sort of challenge, isn't he? Yeah, he's probably more suited to this challenge than actually, the, you know, preparing for the final himself. He doesn't have a great record in, mm. in finals. Um, uh, but but yeah, I think he'll he'll relish this. I think it's 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 he'll, I think it's easy. It would be wonderful if any supporter of any club would want Klopp and the emotion that he shows, you know, in charge of their team because 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 you can tap into that and that's the bond that's developed between Kopp and Klopp, um, and and it's na it's a natural thing. But but the progress that that Liverpool has made it's been dwarfed by what City have done. But it, it is there. It is steady progress. I mean, it's it's it, successive seasons qualifying for the Champions League represents progress in, in to what he inherited. Absolutely. So it's it is going in the right direction. It, um, this is a sort of this is the ideal, isn't it? This tie. This is what Liverpool want to be doing in future in the league. They want to be challenging Manchester City. They want it to be a two-horse race at the top of the division. Where they they're up against each other and they have the means of, of overtaking them. This is a microcosm of that in a cup scenario, European Cup scenario, and the European Cup tends to bring out the best in Liverpool teams. It brought out the best in a far worse Liverpool team back in 2005. That um, there's just something about them, the magnetism with this competition. I know it's that's cliche in itself, but it's true. I was lucky enough to be there at the Olympiakos game to Istanbul, the Juventus tie that year. There's something that happens. Mm. Mm. In that context, would you trust Lovren in the centre of defence? No, 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 no. I mean, uh, but but not because of you know not because he contradicts anything that that uh, Dom has said. I just I, I think he's an inferior player. I mean, I, Liverpool don't have any other option really. But <clears throat> he's when when we talked about sort of Matip needing to to be upgraded, obviously goes without saying that you know uh, even with Matip in the side, Lovren should really be a bench player. And I think his record in bigger games this season at Tottenham, against Tottenham at Wembley, against Manchester United at, at Old Trafford, is liability. Uh, it sounds very harsh, but it's, it's just he, the Liverpool he joined um, are no longer a Liverpool he's really capable of playing for. I mean, they were a sort of a fifth, sixth place side, and now their ambition is to win the Premier League, and he's not a, a centre-back who is going to win a Premier League winner's medal anytime soon, I wouldn't have thought. Yeah. We're, it's easy to overlook the fact that in between these two ties, you've got two very big derby matches, the Merseyside derby and Manchester derby, which obviously City could win the title by beating United, which is, you know, the impossible dream for most of them, isn't it? When you, when you look at those derbies, which is the most intense, do you think, the Manchester derby or the Merseyside derby? You're a supporter of any of those clubs, and you'll argue your own one, wouldn't you? I mean, I've—I suppose Man United's rivalry with Liverpool might dilute slightly their rivalry with City, and it might be more slightly slightly tilted towards the City side when they when they're confronting United as as you know a club that hasn't enjoyed quite as much success as United over the years. Um, but I wouldn't like to argue that in a in a, in a pub in my side. Um, <laughs> That's a hospital pub. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. um, I mean, I, I used to love covering the, the Merseyside derbies because it, it was such a frenzy, um, such a frenzy on the on the pitch. You never knew what was going to happen next, other than the fact they would be sending off at some stage. It's usually Stephen Gerrard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they were brilliant. They were just wonderful occasions. Um, I don't, I don't want to... 
I, I'm not going to offer you an answer as to which is them. I mean, I think Swindon versus Oxford's fairly frenetic as well. But, but um, that's a great shout. Actually, that's, that's very nasty. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's yeah. derbies are derbies, aren't they? And mm. they mean everything to the to the clubs. I mean, I suppose Everton and Manchester United might be looking at these fixtures in the weekend and thinking it's come around at the right time this because we've got a chance here they'll be distracted by what's going on in the Champions League mm -hmm. Will Jose Mourinho's ego survive the absolute obliteration it would be for the City to win the title on his watch I don't know but I, I, I kind of want to see how he reacts to that just I, I want to see what his, his his approach is because it would be a sort of um, it'd be the ultimate spin wouldn't it sort of City have just won the title on your own ground on their ground, and there would be maybe, I mean, it would have to be, you know, a mighty refereeing controversy or, you know, some kind of really dark conspiracy. But I, I'm sure, I, I, I trust Jersey. I'm sure he'll find something. Don't, uh, don't doubt him, Mike, I'm sure. The problem he's got is that he was brought in to prevent this from happening, wasn't he? Yeah, I, well, I, th I think sort of some of that might have been diluted by the seasons that hold on, because it's, so, it's been so inevitable for such a long yeah. time. Yeah. But I... Um, I don't know. I just uh, I think Jose would, would struggle with uh, any day which isn't really about Jose somehow. So we'll, we'll see. <laughs> mm, yeah, he does say that City isn't important to him, which no. I, I really believe, <laughs> don't you? Um, it was interesting looking at Manchester United. Um, Romelu Lukaku became the fifth youngest uh, player to get to 100 goals, and there we're talking about Rooney, Fowler, Owen. Harry Kane, so in really select company. Yet, you mention him in that same breath, and it's almost as though he doesn't belong. Do you agree with that? He might be a victim of having done it at various different clubs. He hasn't been prolific at one club. Um, I th when, he, when he turned up at Chelsea as a teenager from Anderlecht, you looked at him and thought, this is a player that could do something amazing. Um, as it transpired, it wasn't for Chelsea, but I mean, he did do fantastically well on those loan spells at West Brom and Everton in, in teams that where he had to be the main man. He had to, he had to, he wasn't getting the supply line that, that Michael Owen, Robbie Fowler, Harry Kane, mm. and Wayne Rooney were, were getting. Um, so I, I, I think it's a, a wonderfully impressive achievement, and he's got the potential to certainly to live up to the 75 million, whatever it was that we've paid for him. I mean, that's not going to be an issue. If he carries on like this, quietly accumulating these goals and scoring 30 goals a season, almost unnoticed. I mean, he's got, he's, he's pushing 30 this season, isn't he? 26, 27. Mm. He'll end up with 30 goals. Um, and okay, he will be, he will feel as if he should be the star around, you know, Manchester United's front line. It's, he's got everything. He's got, and, and he's also, he's also suffered the criticism this season as well, which probably will make him a better player in the long term. Um, I've always, I've always been a massive fan of his. He's think, a bully. Do you think part of it is that sort of when one of the problems, and I, I mean people as a whole, not writers and journalists and fans, but everyone, when, when you see a player for the first time, your impression of him kind of sticks. So Lukaku, the knock on him for a long time was, um, can't do it against a, a good side, can't link the play, can't hold up the ball. Mm. Those things have all changed, really. I mean, he's, he's, I, I, I'd say he's already a better player than he was. Mm. Um, but we're still we're, we're still instructed by that sort of that that first initial impression, and, and you kind of that's something that you see with a lot of players. I mean, you you, you just once you once you pigeonhole them, they, they they tend to stay there, and I think that's very unfair. And I think Lukaku is a little bit of a, a victim of that. Mm. Would you? I I saw uh, Jesse Lingard last week talking about uh, himself, 
Rashford, Pogba, McTominay being the new class of 92. Not having that at all. No. Just because the class of 92, I know they're not exactly undercovered. I mean, they've got TV series all over the place now. But It's a brand now, isn't it? It is, it is kind of a brand, but also we, we, we can't get away from what they were. And that was, they were era-defining players. And that's not the group that you've just mentioned. I, I think there are some very good players in there. Pogba's a, a fabulous player and Lingard too and, and Rashford. McTominay, I, I, I'm, I still don't really know what he is. I, I don't, you know, other than being not Paul Pogba, I'm not, I'm not quite <laughs> sure yet. Um, but I, I think that's a, I don't think any one of those players is superior to, to kind of their, um, their, their equivalent in the previous group. I wouldn't say that, that Pogba is a better player than Paul Scholes was. Or, and also, remember, think about the, the achievements that those players are, are tied to. I know that sort of this current group are, are still quite you know, uh, new, into their, new into their careers, but sort of European Cups and Premier League titles, and it, it's, that's, that's a, um, it's a bit of a quantum leap for me. Mm. Thursday, Arsenal, CSKA. Um, what has really struck me in the last month, OK, they've won all their games. The sense of apathy there. That game Sunday was oh. unbelievable. I mean, it was the most unconvincing 3-0 win I've ever seen in my life. The first half was... Stoke had a forward. Balling. Oh, yeah. Stoke like, had a forward. That would have been... It's just... I mean, it's... it's and, the, and the empty seats. Yeah. The empty seats. I mean, I know it's a big stadium, so you get big crowds and they get... They get masked a bit by the size of the place, but um, I think everything there is winding down um, towards a divorce. Um, and and I mean, they they can put their eggs in the basket of the Europa League at the moment, and 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 they can get to the final, and they can win the final, achieve Champions League football, but it mustn't it mustn't knock them off the path of change. It, they have. They have reached the point now. They have to remember that first half performance of Stoke. If, even if they win in Lyon in the Europa League final, yeah. they have to remember, you know, how dire it was. How dire it was. Um, well, they have to go back to Man City on a Thursday night, completely outclassing them at the Emirates, so a half-empty Emirates again, um, and just remind themselves that, that they they can't be carried away with Champions League qualification against Vada by the Europa League because it needs to change. Mm. But can they win the Europa League, do you Definitely. think? Yeah, they can do. I mean, they've, they've certainly got the players and also I think they've, I mean, it, the reason behind the Premier League form is that they essentially know where they're going to finish already. The, the Champions League qualification by league is already off the table. So, you know, you're going to be carrying players in who are relatively fresh against other teams who probably do have active league concerns. So, yes, absolutely. And um, it's kind of the, the classic Arsenal cliche, isn't it? On their day, they're very capable. I mean, it, I mean it's very difficult to know whether um, that will lead to anything in Europe, but it's possible. Mm. You've talked about change in the context of Arsenal, Dom. You were at Stamford Bridge yesterday. Mm. Um, I think there's a, an assumption that change is coming uh, at Chelsea. Yeah. What shape will that take? Well, it's interesting, really. I think, because I think that defeat didn't just leave the focus on Conte, who we know is, well, we, we think he's going to leave. Um, I think there's an acceptance that that is what's going to happen. That's where that's heading. But I think it also thrusts the, the focus on what Chelsea's project, what their plans are for the future. How, how are they going to reinvent themselves to be able to challenge at the top of the Premier League and to get indeed get back into the, into the Champions League? Um, you know, they haven't. They spent a lot of money 
in the last few transfer windows, but not not wisely. No, and they've bought a lot of players in that sort of twenty to thirty million pound bracket, which is a, a sort of deceptive bracket. You're not you're either buy, buying damaged elite players or you're buying potential, or you're getting someone like Ross Barkley who's running out of contract, um, and it just feels a bit of a mishmash. It doesn't feel as if there's a there's a proper strategy as to where they're going. Um, so are they suddenly going to reinvest lots and lots of money and, and bring in two or three elite players that will take them back into that top four? Or are they going to continue along the path that they are, which seems to be more likely, if I'm honest, um, given the sort of uncertainty around the, the stadium redevelopment and you know what's been happening in Russia, etc., mm. and things behind the scenes at, at Chelsea. Are they going to do it with a young coach in charge? I mean... The, they sort of, there's an acceptance at Chelsea that they have a sort of two to three year cycle where the coaches burn out, but they also consider themselves to be victims of the type of people they hire in that position that, you know, after a while these guys rile the ownership to the extent that there is a parting of the ways. Mm. Conte was like that, Simeone would be like that, Tuchel would be like that, so they're not really looking in those areas. What about Allegri? I don't know whether he'd be mad enough to go there, um, <laughs> unless he's thinking payoffs. I mean, he's he's very impressive man, but I, I thought that he might be a better fit for Arsenal. Strangely, um, it's funny because because there's no technical director at Chelsea at the moment, and they're still working out what that they want that role to be. If they indeed they they, they fill it again, um, the structure is arguably better behind the scenes at Arsenal than it is at Chelsea, um, with the exception of the Wenger situation. Um, and that's the first time in a long time we've been able to say that. I mean, Arsenal are ready to go to the, to go again. Chelsea don't feel as if they are yet. So it's a big summer for Abramovich. A lot of decisions for him to make um, because I think this whole season has been a massive anticlimax, and it's been an anticlimax that's been played out to the sort of poison and, and political intrigue that's been pushed out there by the by a head coach who doesn't really want to be there anymore. Mm. And conversely, what Tottenham did at Stamford Bridge was prove themselves to be London's top club at the moment yeah well I, I, I'm a Tottenham fan so history means I can't say that <laughs> until the season actually finishes but yeah I, I thought Tottenham were bar, barring that first 20-25 minutes they're hugely impressive and I think um, I think if you if you took the history away from that fixture um, and treated it in, in, a, in a in sort of an isolated context it really wasn't that close I mean it could probably have been um, the, the goal Tottenham conceded they shouldn't have conceded so, Goalkeeping mistake. Um, it could easily have been three or four nil. Um, I think what's what's interesting is that sort of there's still this um, still this habit of whenever Tottenham lose a game, there's still the kind of the the, the temptation to, to pelt them with their previous associations. I think it's interesting that they meant they went one down in a game where they have a trouble, very troubled history after a mistake and after having underperformed these are all kind of hallmarks of what Tottenham do away from home Spursy exactly that Mike of what they do at those kind of grounds and particularly at Stamford Bridge and yet there was a okay it it came from an Ericsson goal which I mean I I don't even know how you describe that it was you know ridiculous Um, but from that point on it was a real show of strength I don't want to sort of use cliches like character and mentality but there was a lot of that to it and there was a a, a, a calm resolve to play the way they can do and the way they often do against teams you know, mid-table and lower down who they now regularly bully. They did that to Chelsea and I think that's a, you know, some real worth to that. Um, mm. And without Hurricane, I know he came on, but you know, in, a, in a sort of a peripheral sense, really. Mm. Ericsson, 
one of our most underrated players. The stats from that game ran 12.9 kilometres, which is the most of anyone. 70 high intensity sprints, which was second only to Ali, I think. Highest average speed. It was just a heartbeat below eight kilometres an hour. And he got an amazing goal. He's quality. I mean, he's the, the one signing made with the bail money that you look at and think, oh, they really spent well there. Um, and I thought what was interesting, the analysis of that, of that game suggested that he took it upon himself to move centrally because it wasn't really working out on the left. So he, he, he came into that sort of slightly deeper role to get, to get the ball and then he started to dictate the play and Chelsea never got anywhere near him. Um, he's, he is, I don't know if he's underrated. I mean, I think anyone who watches him sees he's absolutely quality, absolute quality. Um, but, but he's, he's a player that can, he's still got the world at his feet, really. He could be someone that, I mean, Spurs, we always talk about Ali, Ali and Kane because of our English bias, but Ericsson is, Ericsson is another one of their stellar performers. Mm. Having said that, Ali, the way he took his first goal in particular was just sublime. Yeah. Um, I thought clever with the second one as well. To get that touch out from the massive bodies and just... And yeah. then, How many players hack at that? I know, when they exactly. They see that chance. Exactly. Remember an Andre Ayew goal at Stamford Bridge a few years ago on the first day of the mm. season where he... Um, it is quite similar. He just he, he kind of Cruyff turned out of out of congestion and just tapped the ball home. It was it was absolutely class. Pulled his hamstring and that was it. <laughs> <laughs> what does that tell us about Ali as a person more than a player? Because he's come under a lot of criticism yeah. and he's still only twenty one. Who has been criticising? I'm amazed at this. Everybody keeps going on about all this criticism that Daddy Ali has. None of the media have been criticising. The only person who appears to have been criticising is Gareth Southgate by not picking him. I'm amazed at this. I mean, John Cross has been making this point on Twitter. Nobody is criticising Delhi Alley. But it's the agenda, Dom. Remember that big meeting that everyone goes to when we you know, get to it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, even he's saying this. Hugo Lloris said, he's had all this criticism. No, he hasn't. He just wasn't picked by his national manager. I don't think it's criticism. I, I think what Ali suffers from is um, hostility from rival fans. It's, it's a different yeah. thing, and it gets mistranslated as a kind of media agenda. But you've got to have that edge oh, to make it as a player, and he's got that edge, hasn't he? He loves the criticism. I mean, from the fans, he loves... The ears, I, think, was yeah. I, I, I was at Bournemouth a couple of weeks ago, and um, he, he got shouldered off the ball within the first four or five minutes, and you know, all the normal stuff comes out from the stands, they're cheating, all that, all that kind of thing. Yeah. And you can actually see him sharpen the more the hostility grows. And, and he's... He, I, I, I don't know how you describe the effect on someone's personality that that has... But it's almost as if it stops being a game of football between two teams. And for someone like Ali, it's almost a contest between him and the supporters. Mm. And that's a, that's a really precious quality in a player, and a precious quality in an English player as well, given you know, the, sort of the, the conditions our national team often play under. There, there was, you, you, you're right, there was criticism. There was criticism of his diving, wasn't there? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and there was, and, and in fairness, at Sellers Park, when he did the last of his sort of theatrical plunges, um, <laughs> that did rile the home support and he came off at half-time with them screaming at him and he came off... It doesn't take much at Palace, no, does it? No, but he came off at full-time with them screaming at him and he just smiled at them because he'd won the game. They won the game 1-0. Yeah. So, um, that's... You're right. It does, bring, it does bring out the best in him. I think also there's, there's been a sort of a refinement of his temperament in general. I mean, a couple of years ago in the, the first season when Tottenham, when Tottenham chased Leicester and um, he got a retro ban for, for punching Claudio Jacob. You don't see that often from him anymore. I mean, he, he had another nasty moment in the Europa League against Genk at Wembley where he did a terrible tackle that you know, mm. deserved a red card. But his, 
he, um, you can see him bubbling internally sometimes, but you don't see any manifestation of that anymore. I hope I'm not tempting fate for Russia, but um, you do. There is a, you know, there is a bit of control, and he, he certainly deserves some some praise for that. So probably does does Pochettino, who's mm. very well aware of. Spurs are at Stoke at the weekend. Uh, Stoke doomed? No, not on the not on the evidence of of Sunday, um, and, and well. Not the evidence of the endeavour they put in on Sunday. That they could do with some cutting edge from somewhere. Um, I don't know where that comes from. Peter oh. Crouch is probably as good as they've got. Isn't yeah, it? I was thinking during that game. When was the last time Stoke had a reliable goalscorer? I mean, they've been in the Premier League for a decade, mm. and there's they're, they're, I know they signed Mike Lowen, but uh, not really Mike Lowen. Mm. Um, Mike Walters used to score a few, didn't he? But he wasn't well, a twenty. Walters, goal, yeah. I mean, he, but he was he was sort of uh, you know maybe he might get you ten goals a season, yeah. but sort of. It's incredible if you see mm. the kind of the forwards that have been placed well, you look elsewhere. At Berahino, the amazing disappearing footballer. Yeah, yeah. it's a great yeah. show. That, that is a great show. Mm. Yeah. I mean, but then when he came on on Sunday, that sort of everybody were watching it in the press room at Stamford Bridge, and it was like, oh, it's, this is his moment. This would have been very Arsenal. That would have been. Will it be very Arsenal to let Southampton off the hook? Because obviously they're at the Emirates at the weekend. <sighs> it would be Mike, but I, I I can't see it from the Southampton team. I. I think that they, I mean, this season in itself has been a failure, but they're carrying quite a few uh, problems to do with their recruitment. I think the, the squad is, is it's very unbalanced and it has been for quite some time. Um, they're still entirely reliant on Charlie Austin playing, which I, I think Charlie Austin is a good player, but that's for a club who, who have been so regularly praised for their recruitment and their ability to identify talent, that's quite damning. Um, and the Mark Hughes appointment, I, I'm not sure what, the, the aim is there. I mean, I, I don't. Um, Mark Hughes has done some good things in the Premier League, but it just reeks of a change for change's sake um, situation. So no, I I can't see Southampton causing them any trouble, mm. even with Arsenal in this kind of you know milieu. What about um, Huddersfield? Mm. Can't seem to score any goals. They're at Brighton. Are we getting into must-win territory here for both teams? Actually, yeah, they both got. They've both got pretty awkward running. Well, Brighton have got, I think, the top four, Palace, yeah. and one other, Burnley, I think it is. Yeah, Burnley, yeah. Yeah. that's right. Um, then they've got to play Spurs at the Amex as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I, 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 think, I look at Brighton and think that they've actually, they've had a brilliant season, I and mean, they really have. And I know there's, there's anxiety still, and, and it would have been increased at the weekend when, with the missed penalty when they should really have beaten Leicester, who apparently weren't very good on the day. Um, and there will be anxiety there, but I, I still think they they're in a they're in a sort of we need one more win territory, and they've got a game with Huddersfield coming up. Um, Huddersfield, I think they've done brilliantly to to be where they are and to still be what they three points clear at the moment, mm. three points clear of Southampton. Um, but you're right, they're in a they're in a trough at the moment. Um, they look knackered. Yeah, they look exhausted. Mm. It's been but it's been that kind of brutal season, isn't it? As you get. And, and it's a virtually a new squad that's been flung together, and they, and it's, you know, they, they've had little spells where they've they've looked the part, and and they've, I mean, that that performance against Bournemouth the other week was was magnificent, um, but they haven't done that enough, and it does look as if the season's sort of catching up on them. But that said, Stoke or Southampton and Palace, who are still below them, have got to still get results to catch them up. Um, so it's not doom and gloom. They're, they're still in a sort of, you know, five more points. And we've got a real shout here. Mm. Um, and you'd rather be in their position than, 
Southamptons or um, or Stoke Cities. Mm. And West Bryan, as we know, are, are down to all intents and purposes. Mm. Um, Alan Pardew yeah. leaving mutual consent. Yeah. There was a really interesting piece by the local reporter there who yeah. absolutely was lacerating. Will we ever see Pardew as a manager in the Premier League again? Logically, no, because um, all these... The, the last few precedents that he set should preclude him from that. But Premier League clubs, I mean, I would have said that previously. I mean, before he actually moved to West Brom, I, I still don't, I still haven't heard a justification for him getting that job. Um, it's just a uh, an astonishing decision. Um, and especially so, the, the piece you referenced is utterly damning of not just his, his sort of his tactical approach, but his treatment of young, impressionable players. Um, who had previously actually been bright spots in a fairly dour season. Um, the anecdote about Sam Field is very troubling um, and quite baffling too. Um, I don't think so. I think the only way we see Alan Pardew back in the Premier League is if he brings a side into it from, from below. Um, I just, yeah, I, I, I'm still, I, I have no explanations to offer as why he was there in the first place. Um, it just seemed a kind of... Um, I mean, he had a, a, an existing relationship with the sporting director there, so presumably that was an influence. But um, in terms of an actual logical footballing justification, I, I don't, I don't know, and I, I don't know of one that would exist to support his employment elsewhere in the Premier League. Mm, West Brom, you know, basically, are imploding, aren't they? The new chief executive turns up and says there's no money. Mm. You've got Chinese owners who, in general, haven't made a great first impression in English football. Let's put it like that. Who would they go for? Who should they go for? Should they go for someone like a Mick McCarthy uh, or should they maybe go and look around at young coaches? Well, they linked with Potter, haven't they? Mm. Potterson's, um, who I think played at West Brom for a bit. Um, I, I, don't think, I don't think they'll go... I don't think they'll, I don't think they'll go tried and trusted. I think they'll try someone new. Um, they are... A, I, they've baffled me this season because... Their players on on reputation are mid-table Premier League team, um, but maybe those players have run out of legs collectively at the same time, um, legs and belief. But I think we're now ex what we what we've seen there with the finances of it all are what happens um, when managers dictate transfer policy to an, and bring in a certain type of player, a a sort of Premier League warhorse type player, um, and I think I don't think it's a great surprise that they write up against it in terms of wage structure. They need to clear out. They need to they need to start again in the summer. Um, and they need to build it around the younger players, um, but that doesn't necessarily guarantee that you're going to come straight back up. Mm. On that theme, and we don't just throw this stuff and nonsense together. <laughs> Some questions from the the listeners and the viewers. One from Tony Me. Where do you think the next generation of coaches will come from? We moan about the old guard repeatedly getting jobs and the new breed never get time. The pundits, well, they're cosier in the studio, yet they always seem to know everything. Now, that's a coach speaking. That first point, where are the next generation of coaches going to come from? I think from a, uh, an incentivization. I think what the, I mean, you can have the structures to educate and develop coaching, what I think you need to do is, is create the belief that coaching positions at the foot of the hierarchy are going to lead somewhere. Um, 
and that's going to it's not something that can really come from above it has to come from inside the game so you have to have for instance our West Brom situation you have to have a chairman or a sporting director who's willing to say you manager who has done a good job in League One League Two Danny Crowley Crowley there you go there you, there you go absolutely um, you are worth an opportunity at this level now and then if that leads to five coaches saying right well I'm I'm going to take this badge or you know, a, a former Premier League player who is holding out for the position he doesn't deserve in the Premier League thinks, well, actually, I can start at the bottom and it's not a dead end and I can learn my trade properly. I think that's the, it's not, you know, that's not the, uh, the silver bullet for the, for the issue, but that is, I, that would be my starting point at least. Yeah, I mean, there was a young English coach at West Brom, Ben Garner, who, who was working with Poulis and gained a lot of experience with Tony Poulis um, and then left with Poulis. Um, wasn't wasn't retained by Pardew, and he, as far as I know, has has been looking at Championship or League One jobs, and hasn't got one yet. But he's, I mean, that that is, he needs to get, and he's trying to get in at that level with a view to rising up through the mm. through the period. But if you look at it logically, someone like Paul Tisdale, who I know is now yeah. reaching the sort of crossroads yeah. uh, after however many years it is at Exeter. Someone like him going into a West Brom or maybe even an Ipswich makes sense. Yeah, it does. Um, although weirdly with Tisdale, any the next pe- next person who appoints for Tisdale is appointing someone they hope is going to be there for fifteen years or something or 10, 15 years, and that just doesn't a legacy happen anymore. Manager, yeah, isn't it? yeah. Um, it's almost it's almost gone too long with with, with Paul Tisdale, who so has done an amazing job with Exeter, punching above their weight, really. Mm. Um, you know what was really troubling in the summer was that um, uh, the Michael Afton situation at Oxford. Matt Afton yeah, did a very yeah. good job at Oxford, and, and it was sort of, I don't blame him for this. He, he took an assistant manager's job in the Premier League because he felt that was the best route to the top of the game. And I mean, Michael Afton has a family and, and school fees and, and yeah. mortgages to pay. I, I, of course, that's entirely fair. Yeah, he, he would have had a huge pay rise to go there. He's, he's absolutely ambitious as well as a, yeah. as a, as a man. Uh, and you just you thought, well, OK, so, so that was your best option, not a, not a championship club. And, and he had performed well at Oxford. And um, you know, there are an awful lot of Oxford fans who, at the time, were very disappointed. And given how things worked out for Oxford this season, still very disappointed. Um, and it's kind of, that's a symptom of the situation. That's a... You know where the, the the sort of the the ladders exist in this. Mm. Then he will be in contention for the West Brom job now. I mean, you'd he, hope so, he, wouldn't you? Yeah, and he will be. He's um, got to be yeah. considered yeah. at least. Yeah. Just one, one more question from the viewers, my mate Brian from Geneva. If ninety nine point nine percent of the kids are out of the game by twenty one, what can the FA and the Premier League do to turn this around? Actually, I'll quote your book back to you, Mike. <laughs> uh, the Noah Man. There's a passage in that which deals with. You've got your scouts sitting around a table and they're discussing, um, you know, discussing this very issue about how, you know, players can, players, players development is not confined to ages 16 to 19. Players can grow from that point onwards. I think, um, I don't know what the solution is to that, but I think there has to be a, the mentality of a kind of, well, if this player isn't on a certain trajectory by, by age X or Y, they're done. I think that has to go a little bit. I think there has to be a, I think uh, there has to be a, uh, a greater drive towards, uh, well, in relation to what happens when a player falls out of the game. What happens to make sure that he, he isn't sour on the experience, he doesn't feel, uh, the Bywater example, mm. um, he doesn't feel completely rejected and essentially repulsed by the experience. I think that's very important. Um, 
beyond that, I don't know. I'm not really the right person to answer that. You are. Exactly I, that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you know, there's a lot of talent going out of the game. And I think uh, you know, we, we could be here for, for an hour talking about it. My view would be that you have to be much more selective earlier, but not, not got, get kids in at seven or eight make the real choices around them between the ages of 12 and 16, but give them longer contracts so that it's not just a crapshoot. You basically have some time to actually look at what you've got because there are so many ill-informed decisions being made. So I think that's where we've got the problem. When you, when you see that last England squad, the fact that Alfie Borson was playing at Welling United four mm. years ago yeah. um, and Nick Pope was doing a milk round whilst playing in the seventh tier of non-league football mm. um, eight, nine years back. I think that offers hope. We've got the biggest football pyramid going, surely in Western Europe here. I mean, it's ridiculous levels and a good standard at, at, at semi-professional, amateur levels. There shouldn't, if you get released by a, a, an established league club, that shouldn't necessarily be the end of your football career. Mm. Just to finish it then, as a final question, briefly if we could, um, back to the Champions League. Who are your final four? Barcelona, uh, Juventus, um, Bayern Munich, and City. Ditto. Yeah. Oh, blimey, I'm the same. <laughs> <laughs> Bayern, Barca, certainly nailed on. I think City would just be too strong for Liverpool. And one last hurrah for that Juventus defence. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 